Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's kind of a, a financial philosophy called the, the random walk philosophy where basically it says that the, the direction and like the magnitude of changes in stock prices over the short term are, are essentially random. But it kind of ties back to this idea that Benjamin Graham said about the voting machine and the weighing machine where it's a random walk but the destination is kind of known and that destination is, is approximately fair value. Hi and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello and today I'm pleased to welcome Nick McCullum from Passive. That's Passive without an E. Hello Nick. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. So, I don't really know a lot about you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got um, involved in the financial space. I guess I've worked in professional investment management for pretty much my entire career at this point. Probably the easiest place to start is back in college. So, I originally enrolled in a degree in biology at a, at a little university called the University of New Brunswick here in eastern Canada. And uh, kind of quickly realized that, well my long-term goals of potentially going to medical school were kind of interesting. I wasn't really a huge fan of learning about plant biology or mammal physiology or all of the other components of biology that, um, that you kind of are required to learn as a biology major. So I went to my academic advisor and I said, uh, what can I switch into that will still allow me to graduate on time, but is not biology. So uh, just through that conversation, I guess I kind of stumbled into doing a degree in mathematics and it turns out that a lot of the good internships for math majors are in finance or, or computer science. So uh, this internship after my first year, I kind of stumbled into a job at the largest mutual fund provider in Canada, TD Mutual Funds. And then after college, I got a job at a fundamental equity research firm down in the southern United States. And uh, after that, I joined the team here at Passive. So that's kind of a 30-second overview of kind of what's led me to get involved in the financial services industry today. So it was just a series of, of accidents then, was it? Yeah, I guess if a series of lucky accidents, we'll call them. What was it about finance that first started attracting to you? Like you, you obviously didn't come into it from a financial background or a family with those um, sort of interests. Um, what was it that clicked with you right at that time back in college? I was always pretty entrepreneurial in nature. As a kid, I, would, I was always trying to start these little side businesses, doing like manual labor jobs for people or or selling trinkets or doing bottle drives. So I kind of always had an interest in, uh, in business and in operating a business and growing a business and making money. So I guess when I was in college and I discovered that there was like an opportunity to pair mathematics, which was something else that I was interested in and had always kind of excelled in math, I guess, relative to the other subjects, which potentially is not saying very much, I guess, but I was always pretty good at math, I guess, relatively speaking. So when I found that the world of finance and investing allowed you to pair mathematics with this entrepreneurial bug that I had had for so long, I guess I was naturally drawn to it. And I, I guess I also would also say, as I studied finance more and more, it became pretty clear to me that a lot of the complications or like a lot of the sophistication that you might assume about the investing world from the outside looking in can really be boiled down to a lot of common sense principles and a lot of the edge that individual investors can get is, is more of a behavioral edge and not like an analytical edge. So I would say a combination of an entrepreneurial bug uh, the opportunity to pair it with some, whatever math aptitude that I had accumulated over the years and then also just learning that the world of finance might not be as crazy complicated as I had once thought. 
So what were some of those simplifications that you, dis- you discovered? What were just one of, the, um, one of those examples? I've always been really inspired by the work of Warren Buffett. Many people kind of know him as like the world's best investor. His track record in managing the stock portfolio of Berkshire Hathaway is, I would say, pretty much unmatched. But I think what Warren Buffett doesn't get enough credit for is his work on the education side of things. So Warren Buffett writes an amazing annual letter every year. And I would say if you want a really world-class business education for cheap, one of the best things you can do is just read his shareholder letters over time. And if you read those shareholder letters, I think one of the points that he always hammers home to his investors and to people who study his business philosophy is that one of the single greatest edges you can have as an investor is just thinking long-term instead of trying to think short-term. So that's not something that is outside of the ability of any investor. We all have the ability to pivot our mindset from short-term to long-term. So I would say that if you want to learn a lot of common sense investing principles that are applicable to any investor, studying Warren Buffett's writings is a great place to start. And um, that's particularly um, relevant now because a lot of people have jumped into the stock market over the last year and um, are there because they can see short-term gains and a lot of people are making short-term gains. But um, is there any word of warning that you might give those kind of new investors? I would say that in the short term, market fluctuations can be quite random and it's very hard to tell over shorter periods of time what's causing prices to go up or down. There's a a famous investor named Benjamin Graham, and he's got a quote that I quite like where he says, in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And basically what that implies is that in the short term, the prices of businesses or investment funds reflect sentiment more than anything else. But over the long term, those prices should eventually reflect the actual value, like the true intrinsic value of the business or the fund that you're actually buying. So Uh, Said differently, in the short term, prices can be pretty disconnected from true value, but in the long term, it kind of tends to balance out over time. Yeah, another one of his great quotes is, um, I'm not sure I'll get this exactly right, but um, it's uh, that uh, the market is like a drunken psychopath that knocks on your door each day and makes an offer for your house. Yeah, and he says, you know, some days the offer might be half what your house is worth and sometimes it might be double. And that kind of erratic nature of this analogy, I think he calls him Mr. Market. But yeah, this analogy of Mr. Market is, is pretty interesting because it kind of shows like the erratic behavior of the stock market over the short term. So as a mathematician, you'd have an interest and a knowledge of um, randomness. Would that be the case? I would say so, yeah. Probability, randomness, yeah. What, what's your observations about the market and how randomness um, affects it? There's kind of a, a financial philosophy called the, the random walk philosophy where basically it says that the, the direction and like the magnitude of changes in stock prices over the short term are, are essentially random. But it kind of ties back to this idea that Benjamin Graham said about the voting machine and the weighing machine where it's a random walk, but the destination is kind of known and that destination is, is approximately fair value. So, uh, so that's one thing I would say. And then separately in terms of probabilities and math and randomness, um, I would say like the best way to kind of swallow that and accept that is, is to again to think long term because if you look at like the statistics of the stock market the, the probability of you experiencing bad outcomes in the stock market declines dramatically as you extend your time horizon so um, there's lots of good data you can look out there that shows you the probability of getting negative returns in stocks over one year versus over three years versus over five years versus over 20 years and as you extend that time horizon out your probability of experiencing negative outcomes just goes lower and lower and lower and lower. I think it's around the 20 or the 25 year mark where 
there's been no like time period in the history of the United States stock market where an investor has had a negative return when investing over that time horizon. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of, uh, lots of, I guess, ways to handle the, the random nature of short-term stock price movements. But to reiterate, I think being a long-term buy and hold investor is probably one of the best mitigations you can have. And this is where we come to the concept of passive, that's passive with an E, investing. Is that the case? Yeah, so passive, uh, passive investing basically is the philosophy that you don't want to be an active investor and make active picks within your stock portfolio. So an example of that would be if you think Apple is going to grow as a business and you like Apple's products and you think they have a competitive advantage, you might go out and express that economic view by buying individual shares of the Apple company. And then you're a direct investor in Apple. So I guess on the one hand, you benefit from any upside to that business. But on the other hand, you're also exposed to a lot of risk because I don't know, there could be, you know, a new smartphone company that comes and competes with Apple. The company could, you know, have anything from fraud to, to, you know, natural disasters impact its business. So there's lots of like individual risk factors that come from, from owning individual businesses. They call that like idiosyncratic risk, I guess, or kind of, so that's the active philosophy, owning individual stocks, making really active views about your economic pro, uh, predictions about the future. The other approach is passive investing and passive investing is the philosophy that says, I'm not sure what's going to happen with individual companies or, or maybe I have, suspicions, but I'm not willing to bet on them. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to just buy a broad swath of businesses through an investment fund that owns a little bit of every business so that uh, I can kind of just benefit from the long-term economic growth of the countries or the regions that I'm investing in and kind of the long-term compounding nature of business growth and economic productivity increases. So an example of like a passive investing strategy might just be something as simple as investing in the S&P 500 index fund. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, the S&P 500 is a stock market index. That just means it's a group of stocks that trade on the stock market. It's got the 500 largest companies in the United States in this index. So when you invest in the S&P 500 index fund, uh, you're making a passive bet on the long-term future or growth of large American businesses. So buying an S&P 500 index fund gives you exposure to Apple, like we talked about earlier, but it also gives you exposure to the other 499 largest companies in in the United States. Uh, It's basically the surest way to be guaranteed an average return in the stock market. And an average return might sound like a bad thing, but if you just look at the statistics surrounding active fund management, the vast majority of active investment funds, which are funds that make, you know, active picks like buying individual Apple stock that I talked about earlier, So the vast majority of active investment funds, they actually underperform after fees because on average, in theory, they should get an average result, but that average result is dampened by the fees that they charge. So overall, passive investing is really the the surest way to be guaranteed an average result in the stock market. And over the long term, an average result is actually quite good. You know, stocks have returned depending on how you measure it and what your time horizon is, I think between eight to 10% over the long term, And if you compound that eight to 10% over many years, it really, really adds up over time. So yeah, that's kind of like a high level comparison of active investing and passive investing. And I'm happy to kind of dive into more detail on either one if you'd like. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Well, one of the details that comes from that is that the concept of diversification. You, you gave us the example of the, um, the risk of just um, investing in one company like, um, like Apple, whereas an index fund will give you instant diversification. Yeah, absolutely. And that diversification, it really matters because, you know, like I said, there's lots of specific things that can happen to a business to really, you know, lower that business's growth prospects or, or even its economic viability over the long run. If that's something that you're kind of skeptical of on here, I mean, it's easy to look at a company like Apple and say, wow, Apple's an amazing company. I love my MacBook. There's no way that that company's going to go out of business. But uh, let me tell you something, that's probably what every BlackBerry investor said back in 2005, right before the iPhone launched. And uh, that you know the story's now been told the iphone pretty near put blackberry out of business and its investors kind of had to bear the brunt of that so investing in an index fund you know you might still own a little bit of blackberry in your broad diversified portfolio but because it's such a small holding the impact of business risk like that is dramatically reduced just going back to when you worked at a mutual fund you mentioned that you were in the fundamental analysis area is that correct yeah so i was working actually in in credit uh credit research basically so i was working in the bond department and i was responsible for kind of doing credit worthiness checks on the companies that we were considering investing in so that was i guess my first job and then uh kind of decided while i was there that bonds were uh, to be to be honest with you quite boring so I, I tried to pivot into equities for my next one i suppose you found bonds boring a little bit, yeah. And I mean, there was there was other constraints as well. I mean, at the at the firm that I was at, I think this is pretty common for professional investment management. But you were kind of required to, if you became an investment manager and actually was in charge of the portfolio, you were required to invest a certain amount of your salary into the fund that you were managing. And, and being you know a young twenty something year old, I didn't really particularly want to own a bunch of bonds because that's an asset class that's more suited for people with extremely low risk tolerances. So there was lots of factors there, but I knew that eventually I wanted to make my way into equity research. Yep. And so the equity research you did was all fundamental based. There was no technical as such. Yeah. So like I said, my next job was uh, fundamental equity research and we were focused specifically on, I guess, dividend stocks. So our audience or our uh, like people who would purchase our research were generally retirees and other sorts of people who really needed to generate a steady stream of passive income over time. You're also an expert in algorithmic trading, and um, you're one of the highest numbered videos on YouTube for algorithmic trading. But tell us about algorithmic trading. It's one of those concepts we hear about that um, you know fund managers with um, supercomputers are undertaking to, to gain some sort of edge. Is that the kind of thing that it is? Algorithmic trading is a super broad field. I would say broadly speaking, it can be defined as just the use of computers to make investment decisions. So that can range you know, anywhere from as basic as someone who uses a spreadsheet to determine what they wanna buy or sell based on a simple metric like the price to earnings ratio. So that's like the simple end of the spectrum. At the complicated yep. end of the spectrum, you might have a really sophisticated investment management firm like Renaissance Technologies who's using you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and lots of high frequency, high compute uh, algorithms to really kind of make microsecond bets on 10,000 different securities at once. So definitely it's a super broad field. I would say there's like a few categories that you could really divide algorithmic trading into. The first would just be like, quantitative fundamental investing. So that would be like using computers to screen stocks based on certain characteristics that you think are predictive of future returns. 
the, the firm O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is actually a great example of this. So they have funds that filter based on lots of things that they think are quantitatively proven to deliver better returns. So they might buy low price to earnings ratio stocks in a value investment fund, or they might buy uh, you know, high momentum stocks in a momentum fund. So lots of kind of basic things like that. Uh, and I would say a, a good way to think about that just in terms of like layman's terms, so that's basically like rules-based investing applied by computers. And then another category of algorithmic trading would be market making. So that's basically like if there's a bid-ask spread between two people who want to buy and sell a security, the market maker will take it at the bid and maybe sell it at the ask or something like that. Basically really short holding periods, high, high frequency trades who are like primary benefit to society is just increasing liquidity in the marketplace. So that's market making. And then I would say the third is like really truly you know, sophisticated algorithmic trading. So these are people like the Renaissance technologies that I mentioned earlier who are doing really advanced stuff on the bleeding edge of technology and have big servers and lots of compute power. And that's uh, kind of a world where I would say is really secretive and um, you kind of have to almost be like an insider in that field to really know what's going on. You brought up the concept of market makers and we haven't covered that in the podcast yet, but market makers work in options and um, that sort of area. But market makers are also working in ETFs because someone has actually got to be providing the liquidity for index funds and ETFs. Is that the case? Is that how it works? The ETF uh, redemption and creation process is, pr is pretty complicated. I would say the majority of ETFs are pretty liquid, especially if you stick into like some of the large market capitalization or large asset under management for, uh, funds. Like an example would yep. be the SPY ETF, which to, to my knowledge is I think the most popular ETF in the world based on just sheer assets under management. So that ETF, like you'll pretty much always get orders on that filled immediately because it's so big, it's so liquid, everyone wants to own it. And it's basically the cheapest way in the world to own a large swath of American businesses. So that's like one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you might have really small, super niche ETFs, like, I don't know, the, the India small cap ETF double leveraged or something, like a really specific strategy a really specific mandate and it might have like 10 or 20 million dollars of assets under management. So in that case, people who buy and sell that ETF, like it, the difference between the bid prices and the ask prices can, can be pretty big. So if, the, if that bid ask spread gets too big, I think the ETF issuer is kind of required to either redeem or to issue ETF units to kind of narrow that spread and kind of increase some liquidity in the marketplace. So I think Overall, the redemption creation process is kind of driven by investor appetite and investor demand. As funds grow in popularity, then uh, it kind of is reflected in, in more units being issued by the ETF manager. So you mentioned the bid-ask spread, and that's what you see on your screen, isn't it? When you see a, um, uh, you're going to your online broker and you see um, people are wanting to sell units in an ETF or a, a stock at a certain price and um, others who want to buy at a certain price. That's the spread. That's what's known as spread, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's the difference between the, the, bid, the bid price and the ask price, so yes. Because it's just a market, isn't it? It's mar People are actually calling out saying, I'll buy something for this price and I'll sell something for this price. Yeah, and I mean, bid-ask spreads can seem like a really kind of complicated topic or can kind of be kind of hard to like visualize what exactly they mean. I kind of think mm -hmm. like a lot of stock market concepts can be really understood well if you just compare it to buying or selling a house. So, you know, I'm in a little bungalow here in, in Eastern Canada where house prices are super cheap. So like, let's say I go to sell this thing for $200,000. So that's my ask because that's what I'm asking someone to pay for it. 
someone might come in at a bid of $190,000 and that bid ask spread would just be the difference of the two, which would be $10,000. So it's the same in stocks. If I have a, some Apple stock and I want to sell it at 150 bucks, but the next order for a buy order is 149.50, then that uh, that bid ask spread would be 50 cents. And to be clear, that would be a massive spread for a for a company like Apple. Like that bid ask spread would just be pennies typically. But that's just kind of an, an easy to understand example, I guess. That's a great example. I just wanted to ask as well about diversification again, and I just wanted to pull two threads together that we've been talking about here. And one is that you worked with bonds, which you found boring, but um, with diversification there's the idea of other asset classes apart from equities, which is stock markets. And via ETFs, you can also access other asset classes to increase your diversification. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah. In an ideal scenario, you would want to own a collection of assets where you have some exposure to all of the different things that would perform well in different economic environments. So I think the kind of classic dichotomy would be like, inflation deflation on one axis and then the other axis would be tightening monetary policy or loosening monetary policy so that's basically like interest rates are interest rates going up or down so that kind of divides the economic environment into four sectors and depending on what sector of those of that grid that you're in different asset classes do well so like a really basic example would be real estate tends to do well in inflationary environments stocks tend to do pretty well in most environments that are non-deflationary etc etc so diversification kind of allows you to have some peace of mind in knowing that regardless of what's going on with the economy, you'll probably always own a little bit of something that's doing well. And that's important, especially if you're in the decumulation phase and you're selling down your investments to fund your lifestyle, because, uh, you know, every, every month or every week you'll be selling some things. And if you can kind of always have something that's going up that you can trim, that is good because you don't, I mean, the kind of core concept of investing is buy low and sell high. So you always want to sell things that are doing well so that the things that aren't doing so well, you can wait, give them some time to recover. And diversification is kind of the core concept that allows for that. In terms of ETFs, I would say that ETFs have really like revolutionized the investing world in the sense that they have given retail investors and, and even institutional investors access to pretty much every asset class at absurdly low prices. So if you think back to maybe 30 years ago, which would take us to the 1980s, I guess, or 1990s, I guess. Yeah, 1990s now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah time, time flies. Um, let's say 40 years ago to the 1980s. If you even wanted to just invest in the S&P 500 index, which we've talked about as the broad swath of 500 large American businesses, you would have to probably buy an S&P 500 index fund that is run within a mutual fund holding structure. So what that means is that is just your prices are filled and, and orders are executed just once a day. You don't actually know how many units of the fund that you're going to get until your trade confirmation comes back. Instead, you just give them a lump sum and they send you a receipt that says, okay, here's how many units you were able to purchase once the market's closed and we were able to sell. And then redeeming the mutual fund was hired. The operational costs of running a mutual fund are higher than an ETF. So overall, that all-in fee that you were paying for that mutual fund back in the 1980s was probably 2 or 3% per year. And Two or three percent per year does not sound like too too much on the surface, but when you compound that out over a long long period of time, it really eats away at the final value of your portfolio. So today, if just for contrast, you can buy an S and P five hundred index fund within the ETF SPY. It probably charges now. I haven't checked on it in a bit, but I think it's like two or three basis points a year if it's not free by now, and. That reduction from 2% to 2 basis points will make an enormous difference to your long-term investment outcomes. 
So ETFs have made everything a lot cheaper. And then at the same time, they've also given a lot more access to novel asset classes. You can buy ETFs that invest in anything from cloud computing stocks to emerging market stocks to country-specific ETFs like a China ETF or an India ETF or a Russia ETF. And all of this has given investors insane levels of, and it's been amazing progress, I mean insane in the best way possible, but they've given investors more control over their portfolios at lower costs. And I would say, you know, the role of ETFs in investors' ability to build a diversified portfolio is really hard to overstate. Although there are some warnings that I would uh, make. Other guests have mentioned that you've got to watch out for synthetic ETFs, for example, or um, highly leveraged um, ETFs, or even looking into, say, for example, a, a robotics ETF to actually work out, are they actually investing in robotics or are they investing in companies that use robotics? You know, these kind of nuances uh, you still have to be careful about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw the other day someone had asked me, uh, they, said, they sent me an ETF and it was something like the, I don't remember the name of the fund issuer, but let's say it was issued by me. It was called something like the Nick McCollum AI ETF. And they were confused because they didn't know whether the fund's holdings were selected using artificial intelligence techniques or if the fund was invested in companies that use artificial intelligence or, or maybe both or, or maybe something different that they hadn't thought of. So I would say because of that, you have to really, if you're going to select niche or specific or you know sophisticated ETFs to add to your portfolio, it's really important to consider the fund facts or like the fund document that that ETF issuers have to provide for all of their ETFs and just read actually how it's managed, what the criteria are and, and what you, you can expect for the long term from that ETF if you own it. Okay, Nick, so tell us about Passive Without an E. You're the I believe the marketing manager, is that your official title? <laughs> I guess, yeah, my official title, if, if we want to get fancy, I'm the director of growth at Passive. Passive is mm -hmm. a portfolio management tool or a portfolio management software company. And I think the best way to understand what we do is to just, I guess, get a description of the problem that we're trying to solve and, and what we're trying to help investors achieve. So Passive was kind of designed for investors who want to manage a diversified portfolio of, of investment funds or, or even of individual stocks. But it's designed for people who don't want to spend a tedious amount of time doing that. So the initial prototype of Passive was built by one of our co-founders, Brendan Wood. And the problem that he was having at the time was he was trying to manage his own retirement account. He was also trying to manage his wife's retirement account. And he was also trying to manage a couple of uh, children's education funds for his kids. It would be the equivalent of what you have five to nine plans in the United States. So all of that, all of those different funds or, or all of those different accounts had different asset allocations that he wanted to be invested in. And they were getting contributions on different schedules. And he wanted to make sure they were always fully invested. There was all these kind of constraints into how he wanted to manage his portfolio. So what he did originally was he had a big Excel spreadsheet where he would put in all of the numbers and the Excel spreadsheet would do the sophisticated complications required for him to know what do I need to buy or sell now to get as close as possible to my target allocation. So that's obviously very tedious and one of the big problems with that is even once the spreadsheet calculates the trades that you need to make, you'll still have to log into your brokerage account and manually place all of your trades one by one. So Brennan built a basic Python script that read in his holdings from his brokerage account and then did the calculations that way that saved him from having to do manual entry and you know just over the course of building it and using it and benefiting from all the time savings he told some friends or family about it and they all wanted to use it too that's kind of how the initial prototype of passive was born that was four years ago so we've built lots of additional functionality and 
Passive today is, is basically a one-stop shop for you to manage your own portfolio on autopilot. So the way it works is you go to our website, you create a passive account, and then you link your passive account to your brokerage account. Once that's done, passive allows you to set a target portfolio and does all of the sophisticated calculations to calculate the trades that you need to make to get allocated to that target portfolio. Once that's done, uh, Pass actually allows you to rebalance with one click. So we send the trades off to your brokerage, they send back a trade confirmation, and the whole uh, portfolio dashboard will re-render to show you where you are at after rebalancing. Passive also monitors your account daily. So if cash hits your account or you receive dividends or anything like that, we will let you know that it's time to log in and rebalance again with one click. Uh, yeah, so that's like a 30,000 foot overview of how Passive works and like our, our basic features. I would say, you know, just as a user of Passive myself, it's, it's what I use to manage my own investments. The thing that I think saves me the most time is the one click trade functionality. I can just log in and with one click, my portfolio gets rebalanced. That's uh, kind of, I would say, our killer feature. We also have lots of more advanced features that I'm happy to talk about as well. I guess one of the, the advantages of using something like Passive is that you work out your strategy, you work out what you actually want to achieve, and... Um, you don't get distracted by other things in market noise. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about running in uh, your own investment portfolio is that it's not just a binary decision, right? It's not just, I want to buy this, like I want to own this or I don't want to own it. You have to size everything. And passive is really useful in uh, letting you tell the software exactly how you want to size a specific investment. It might be 5% or 20% or what have you. And then passive allows you to make sure that you're always as close as possible to that and that changing prices will not make something too overweight in your portfolio and overexpose you to an asset class that you want some exposure to, but not overexposure to. Can you give us a, a real life example of how that works? I mean, say you've, you're running your own fund. Um, how would something become overweight? What's an example of that? I'll give you a really basic example of an investor who just kind of owns two stocks. So let's say you're a really aggressive, concentrated individual stock investor, and you want to own 50% Apple and 50% Tesla because you're just a big believer in both of those companies and think that they're both going to do really well. So let's say you, you started your fund you know, or your portfolio a year ago uh, and put 50% each one. Well, I think Tesla's gone up like four times or something, and Apple might have gone up like 80% or something in that time period. So um, obviously, you're not going to be at 50-50 anymore. You're probably going to be 70% Tesla and 30% Apple or something like that. So that's kind of how changing stock prices can influence the weights in your portfolio and the benefit of something like passive is that you would never get as extreme as 70, uh, 30, you know, Tesla would have been trimmed down over time as it increased its value within your portfolio or its proportion within your portfolio. Okay. I get, I get the idea now. That's, um, that's an interest, interesting idea. And I, I guess also you were talking about um, another trigger for reweighting and rebalancing would be dividends as well, because suddenly you've got cash, I guess, and you've got to decide where that's going to go. Absolutely. So we have lots of investors who receive cash in two ways primarily, I would say. The first one is through dividends or distributions from the investments that they hold. And ideally, you don't want that cash to sit around idle for too long because it could be invested in something and making you a return. So uh, we have cash notifications that allow people to invest things as soon as they, it hits their account. And then separately, the majority of our investors are in the accumulation stage of their portfolio. So they're still you know, young, they're still working in the workforce and saving for retirement. So they sock away money every week or every two weeks or every month. And when that money hits their account, Passive notifies them so that they can log in and get it invested right away. Okay, so how can people get in touch and find Passive? I would say the best place to find us is just on our website. It's passive.com. Like you mentioned earlier, it's passive with no E. So that's P-A-S-S-I-V.com. 
Uh, we have a 30 day, you know, money back guarantee. So if you try the software, you don't like it, uh, you know, just email us and we'll be happy to refund you. We also have a free version that you can use to kind of get access to most of our features for free. So there's no kind of obligation that you have to pay for this or anything. And uh, I would say, you know, if you have an account with any of our supported brokers and, and you kind of want to try it out, the free version is a great place to start. I would also kind of invite anyone who wants a demo or has questions to just reach out to me directly. Just send me an email. My email is nick.mccullum at passive.com and I'd love to hear from you. Oh, fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes and the episode notes as well. Nick, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thanks so much. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.